So 1 Corinthians chapter 14 here, okay? Now, for any of you who are new with us, we've been preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians since September. Uh, so we're a church that preaches chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're just a few weeks away from wrapping up our 1 Corinthians series. So today we're in 1 Corinthians 14, and this is Paul's letter to the church in the city of Corinth. This is a young church in a big city wrestling with a lot of complicated issues. Status seeking, sexual morality, lawsuits among believers, the strong in faith, neglecting those who are weak in faith, the abuse of spiritual gifts. So Paul pastors this church to health and obedience in Christ. Now today, we're in a passage that talks about men and women partnering in ministry. And I first want to express thanks to Jeremy Treat, who pastors Reality LA, who did a wonderful job preaching this passage and helped give just so much insight and language to my preparation. Now I know that in a room this size, many of us fall in different places when it comes to the topic of distinct roles of men and women in ministry. Some will believe that there is no distinction in the church at all, and to suggest that there are distinctions is narrow-minded and unjust. Then we have some who swing too far and say, men lead and women only follow. Men speak and women stay silent. This is a posture that has led to a lot of abuse within the church. And I want to take this moment to acknowledge that some of you are hurting today because of this very reason. You've been bullied, disregarded, devalued. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is not the vision Jesus had for the church, and this does not reflect the word of God. We love you, and Christ weeps with you. We want Park to be a place where you feel safe and where your gifting is encouraged and where you see leadership that is humble and trustworthy. So for our time today, my goal is to push away from the extremes. The extreme that women have no place or contribution in the church, but to show the incredible competency and gifting and leadership of our women. And I also want to push away from the extreme that there is no distinction at all, but there is a beautiful and complementing relationship between men and women for the flourishing of the church. So let me read our verses, pray, and then we'll jump in the deep end, all right? So here we go. First Corinthians chapter 14, starting at verse 26. Verse 26. The Apostle Paul is speaking. He says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them stay silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you, can all, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in for all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? 
If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that these things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Let me pray for us. Father God, we ask that you would guide us this morning through your word, that there has been much confusion and frustration with these verses, and I pray that where there has been hurt, you would bring healing. May we see the goodness and wisdom of your design for each one of us, and help us through the Holy Spirit to be quick to serve and to lift one another up and to honor each other's giftings. Give us a vision of the beautiful picture of men and women in ministry. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I know that many of you right away want me to jump to verses 34 and 35. Hang on. We'll get there. Okay, we'll get there. All right. But before we do that, it's important to establish what's been happening so far. So our section started in chapter 12 with the discussion of the body of Christ and how every member has been given gifts by the Holy Spirit to build each other up. And this was the problem in the church in Corinth. They weren't building each other up, but they were tearing each other down, especially around the gifts of tongue and prophecy, that there was chaos everywhere in the church. And last week, we learned from Pastor Rafe and how these gifts are meant to be used. They are meant to be used to build up. And in general, prophecy is more helpful than tongues because prophecy is understandable. And tongues, in general, is to be practiced in a personal setting and for a personal benefit between you and God. But there are times that tongues can be used publicly to edify the church only if there is someone who is gifted to interpret. Verse 27, if anyone speak in a tongue, let there only be one or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. Verse 28, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God, okay? So this is the context of what Paul is doing. He is helping to establish a healthy order within the church culture, and he states it explicitly in verse 40. But all things should be done decently and in order. So this is the framework that leads us into verses 34 and 35. Let me just read those verses again. Actually, starting at the second half of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, before I talk about what this means, let me first say what this does not mean. Paul is not saying women should never speak in church how do I know this? Glad you asked. First off, in chapter 11, verse 5, Paul gives instructions on how women were to pray and prophesy. So Paul's not going to give one set of directions in chapter 11, verse 5, and now pivot to a completely different direction here in chapter 14. In addition, when Peter gives his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he says that a characteristic of the present church age will be the Spirit giving men and women a prophetic word. Peter quotes from the prophet Joel, and let me show it to you. Acts 2.17 says this, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
Also in Acts chapter, one, chapter 21, verse 9, the four daughters of Philip had the gift of prophecy. Let me just show it to you here. And it says, and as we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So when Paul says women should keep silent, it can't mean that there is no place for a woman to speak in church, and it cannot mean complete silence. We also have to ask here, too, who is he talking to? Who's Paul talking to? Is he talking about all women? I don't think so. I think he has in mind wives. The Greek word that is used here can be translated as women or wife. So in this case, wives make the most sense because it says in verse 35, for this woman to go to her husband. And this helps us to understand why a wife speaking is shameful because the husband was to be the head of the household and was expected to be the spokesperson for the family. So for a wife to publicly question him or disagree with him would bring shame to the family. So in light of all of this, what then is Paul asking wives to be silent about? I believe Paul is asking for silence so that the elders of the church can discern if a prophetic word is from God or not. So once again, what's the context? Paul is establishing order in the worship of the church. And in verses 29 to 31, Paul gives us the chaotic situation the church is dealing with. Verse 29 to 31. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. So what's happening is that there's multiple people wanting to give a prophetic word to the church, and Paul is saying, stop, stop. This is just chaos. Only one of you can talk at a time, and the rest... Stay silent as the one person is talking. Now notice, Paul is not singling out other women just to be silent. He says that those with a prophetic word, if it is not your turn to speak, be silent. Also in verse 28, Paul says that if you speak in tongues and God has not provided you an interpreter, you are to stay silent. So when it comes to verse 34, when Paul calls wives to be silent, he is not singling out wives and women. He is calling for silence because Paul is establishing order for the edification of the church. Verse 33, Paul says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So this is what's going on here. The church has gathered, and there are those who want to share a prophetic word to the church. And the elders are to judge these prophecies because it is their responsibility to guard the doctrines of the church. And the elders here are the biblically qualified men called by God for this role. And it seems like that the wives are publicly disagreeing with these prophecies. So Paul says, if you disagree or have questions, discuss with your husband, who is to be the spiritual leader of the family. So this verse is clear here. It doesn't forbid women from singing or praying or reading scripture in church. It does not mean complete silence. The speech that is restricted is the critique of prophetic utterances, which is the responsibility of the elders. So this is what's going on here. And this doesn't make it any easier to understand. This is still a very tough pill to swallow because this situation assumes that there are gender roles in the home and in the church. 
So what I want to do here today is I actually want to take a step back. I want to take a step back from this passage and kind of give you a big picture of what's going on here. And what I want to do is I want to present to you the distinct and dependent relationship between the roles of men and women, which is often referred to as the complementarian position, which is where Park Community Church would land. But what I also want to do here this morning is I want to present to you the egalitarian position, which believes that there is no distinction between men and women in the roles of church and home, and why at Park we would graciously disagree with that position. So now before we do this, uh, let me first give a foundational statement. Men and women are created in the image of God, and therefore equal in dignity, value, and worth we have the same salvation and the same inheritance in Christ, while at the same time, we believe that there are differences between men and women, and these differences are not in competition with one another, but complements one another, just like how puzzle pieces do that. The puzzle pieces are different, but they fit together beautifully. You know, another picture that can help illustrate this is ballroom dancing. You know, it's, it's, it's how a man and woman come together in a beautiful way to show off choreography. And in this type of dancing, there's an understanding that the man needs to lead and the woman follows. And the greater the understanding that they each have of their role, the more beautiful the dance becomes. You know, this reminds me a bit of my high school prom. So I went to prom with zero dance experience. And now it was time to slow dance. It was Lady in Red, you know, it was like really romantic, you know, it was really dark. So, so there I am, you know, with my date, and I am stepping on her toes. I am bumping into her, and it was so painful. And my date, who was super patient with me, whispered to my ears and said, Kenson, please, 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 I need you to lead. And once I figured that out, the dancing became less painful. Okay, it wasn't beautiful, but it became less painful. This is sort of the vision, okay, of the complementarian position. It's a picture of men and women working together in such a way that their distinctions make each other better. It's a relationship of interdependence that leads to flourishing. And the more we embrace our calling, the better we dance and show off the wisdom of God and the beauty of Jesus. Now, let's go back and let's ask this question. Where does this idea come from? Let's start at the beginning. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. And it says this. Let me show it to you. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So men and women are both made in the image of God, therefore equal in dignity and value. Our value and worth is not based on sameness or in function, but on the image of God. Genesis 1:28. let me read this to you. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God assigns both Adam and Eve to be stewards of his creation, that we are to rule together on God's behalf. Man was not made to rule over woman, nor was woman made to rule over man. They were meant to rule together on behalf of God, but sin enters this picture and messes it all up. Genesis 3.16, let me show it to you. To the woman he said, God saying to the woman after they ate of the fruit, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
So sin brings an inversion to God's created order. Rather than ruling together, men and women try to rule over one another. The beautiful gender differences have now become opportunities to exploit and oppress. But let me say this. The Bible is not a story where sin gets the last word. God rescues his people from sin, reconciles us to one another, and renews creation. And we first see this work in the Old Testament with Israel, that we see men and women partnering in ministry. Now, oftentimes when we think about the Old Testament, you know, we think about Abraham, David, Moses, Jacob, but few people know about the incredible women of the Old Testament. The prophet Miriam was a worship leader. Deborah was a judge, the highest authority of the time. Rahab helped God's people to enter the promised land. Ruth was a picture of faithfulness and in the lineage of the Messiah. Esther became queen and saved her people from genocide. So throughout the Old Testament, men and women are in leadership and they functioned also in distinct ways. So let me just say that, for example, Deborah was a judge and she was called the mother of Israel. But even so, even so, Deborah had this high authority of leadership. Only the priests were responsible for teaching the scriptures and guarding the temple. And the priests were only men from the tribe of Levi. So we see in Israel, men and women partnering together, men and women in leadership, but yet there is distinct roles. And then we come to the New Testament, especially around Jesus, and Jesus affirms God's design for men and women. He says in Mark chapter 10, verse 16, in the beginning, God created male and female. And Jesus didn't just affirm the dignity of women and men in his teaching, but also in his actions. The way Jesus engaged and treated women was so countercultural in that day. So for example, for example, right now, picture Jesus in your head with his disciples, Picture him out there, you know, having like, you know, like a, you know, fish meal with them, you know, like he's just walking down the road with them. Who do you see walking with him? If you see Jesus with a bunch of men, you've missed it. Jesus had many women disciples who sat under his teaching, and this was radical because in those days, only men could be disciples. Only men could follow a rabbi, but Jesus had many women disciples. We, re we read in Luke chapter 8 that women were not just learning from Jesus, but they were also partnering with him in ministry. Now, let me show you Luke chapter 8 here. It says this. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, and the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, married called Magdalene, and Joanna, the wife of Shusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and, other, and many others who provided for them out of their means. These women disciples provided financially in the ministry of Jesus. So Jesus empowered women in his ministry in all kinds of ways, Yet, there are still differences between men and women. The 12 disciples, the 12 apostles were all men. In the book of Acts, with the growth of the early church and in Paul's ministry, women are mentioned everywhere partnering in ministry. You have Tabitha, Lydia, Demarius, Priscilla, and Philip's daughter. In Romans 16, Paul mentions 10 women as, as his fellow workers. Phoebe, Priscilla, Mary, Junia, Tryphenia, Tryphosa, Julia. Paul partnered with women in ministry, yet there were differences between men and women. 
Paul taught that church leadership should be a plurality of elders and deacons. Now, a deacon can be a man or a woman. However, in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, it makes it clear that the role of elder is to be reserved for biblically qualified and called men of God. That these are men who are ultimately responsible for the governing and, governing and instruction of the church. Now, this is where I want to be careful. Because we hear this, and we can gravely misapply what is being said here. First, let me make some clarifying statements. First, male eldership does not mean only men lead in the church. The vision of the church is that men and women are partnering together in ministry. The office of elder is a specific role of leadership that is meant to equip both men and women to use their gifts to build up the body of Christ. Elders should not be suffocating leadership, but empowering leadership in the church. And let me just say that for us here at Park Community Church South Loop, the church is led by men and women who partner together, that our staff is made up of men and women. Our deacon team is made up of men and women. We have women small group leaders, women worship leaders, women who host on Sundays. Our women have significant roles in our church, and I thank God. I know Pastor Rafe and Darren and Kyung, your elders, we all thank God that we have the privilege and honor of serving alongside our sisters. Second, male eldership does not mean that all women submit to all men, okay? No, no. If one of you guys decided to go to my wife, Susan, and say, hey, submit to me, brother, you and I are gonna have some issues, okay? You and I are gonna have some major issues, okay? That is not what it says at all, okay? Now, in Ephesians 5, it is clear that it says that women are to submit to their husbands as husbands love their wives, but there is no mention that all women submit to all men. Instead, men and women alike who do not serve as elders both submit to the leaders of the church, and submission is not a bad word because Scripture, Jesus calls us to submit to one another because submission is the giving up of our rights to honor and to serve one another, just like how Christ gave up his rights to serve us. Finally, male eldership does not mean women cannot teach. It does not mean that. In Titus 2.3, Paul says that older women are to teach the younger. In 2 Timothy 3.14, Timothy learned the scriptures from his mother and grandmother. In Acts 18.26, we have Priscilla who helped teach Apollos the scriptures. In Colossians 3.16, it gives a broad statement that we are told to teach one another. Women are gifted to teach in scripture. But the teaching that is prohibited for women and for non-elder men is the teaching duty of an elder. And let me show you 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The teaching Paul prohibits is one that exercises elder authority. So for example, the pulpit on Sundays is a place where we believe as a church is an extension of elder authority. Because from this pulpit, you're not getting nuggets of wisdom, you're not getting a pep talk, you're not getting a TED talk, you're being exhorted from the word of God to live for God and to glorify God. That from this pulpit, you're being confronted with sin and corrected by the word of God. Now, I know that you hear all this, 
And it can sound like women are being devalued. Because what you're hearing is that, hey, you know what? You know, women can't serve in this capacity. They can't serve in this eldering capacity. But let me remind you, our value and worth is bound up in God and being made in his image. This idea that the difference in roles means that there's a difference in value does not come from the Bible. It comes from a culture that says value is based on position. It's based on power. And the more you have, the more value you are. That is anti-gospel. Value is not based on role, but on who God says you are. Roles are a part of God's good design. So it is not a value statement that elders are to be biblically qualified men who are called. This is not a statement on competency because in scripture and in the church, it is full of competent and godly women. But even with all this competence, it doesn't override God's structure and order for the church. But outside of this role of elder, women are encouraged to practice their gifts, including teaching publicly and privately. And for myself personally, I have learned so much from women teachers. I had women seminary professors. I just finished a fantastic book by Rafe Haley Barton on silence and solitude. Here at South Loop, we have women who are small group leaders who are opening up the Bible every single week for group study. Last week, we just hosted a marriage retreat in Wisconsin where we both had wives and husbands teaching together. We've had women teachers for the academy. We have men and women who are teaching our kids right in those back rooms. Praise God for all the women in our church with the gift of teaching. So in general, this is the complementarian position and how it plays out. Now what I want to do here is I want to present in a broad way the egalitarian position. These are Christians. Let me just say very clearly, these are Bible-believing Christians. They believe in Jesus They know the lost need to be saved. They agree that the Bible is an errant word of God. These are Bible-believing great Christians, and they would land differently than us. They would believe that the Bible supports the freedom of women to follow their God-given callings and giftings, which would also include eldering. Now, their theological case is that headship is not part of God's good design, but it's the curse of sin. Okay, so we land in two very different places. Let me show you Genesis 3.16 here. It says this once again. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. So husband and wives, you know, that constant misfire that you have communicating with each other, that's right here, okay? And then it says here, but he shall rule over you. Do you see that? Sin entered the world, and you got male headship. So when Jesus comes into the world, gains victory over sin and death, male headship is gone. That's the egalitarian position. So there is no distinction between man and woman in their roles. They would also cite Galatians 3.28, and let me show it to you. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female For you are one in Christ. Do you see that? We are now one in Christ. So stop with the distinctions. Stop with dividing men and women in the church. That would be the egalitarian position. Now how about this? 
How about when it comes to these hard passages, like what we're dealing with here in 1 Corinthians 14, how would the egalitarians handle that? 1 Corinthians 14, or, or for example, other hard passages like 1 Corinthians 11 that talk about head coverings, or in Ephesians 5 where it says explicitly that wives are to submit to their husbands, or what do egalitarians do with Jesus only having 12 disciples as men, or, or the churches are to only have male elders, which is the teaching of 1 Timothy and Titus. You know, what would egalitarians say about all these kind of tricky passages, they would say that what is happening is an accommodation to the historical cultural norms. So when Paul tells wives to submit, he is speaking to a very direct issue in the church in Ephesus with the temple of Artemis and what it was doing to the marriages in that city alone. They would also say that, for example, that wives would be silent here in the church in 1 Corinthians 14. They would also say that, you know what, that is a Corinth issue. That is not a church-wide issue. That is a Corinth issue. That is a chaos issue. It's an order issue that needs to happen there. So it needs to stay within that context. So they would say that these hard verses would have no bearing for us today. So in general, in a very broad way, this is the biblical basis of the egalitarian position. Now, this is where we would land differently in our understanding. As complementarians, we believe male headship was not a result of sin, but existed before sin entered the world. You know, when Eve was deceived by the serpent, she ate of the fruit, so she rebels against God, and then she hands the fruit over to Adam, who joins in that rebellion. Now, God shows up to the garden. Who does he ask for? He asks for Adam. Adam, what have you done? Not Eve. Adam, what have you done? God holds Adam accountable for that whole entire event. He is responsible for the spiritual climate of the home. And let me just take a quick tangent here. Men, husbands, you are responsible for the spiritual climate of your home. Here in 1 Corinthians 14, I love this. Paul asked the wives to ask their husbands at home, what is going on? Do you know what is implied in 1 Corinthians 14? The women in the church are engaged. They're sitting there. They want to know what's going on. They're discerning what is being said. They are absolutely engaged. These are women of the word. Men, husbands, are you men of the word? Can the woman of the, the church, can your wife come to you to get the sermon on the word, to know what the word says? Okay, can I just say this? Our women will flourish, and they are flourishing right now in Christ, but it should not be in spite of us, men. It should be because of us. Just in the same way, brothers, we are flourishing in our walk with Christ, not in spite of them, but because of them. Now, in addition, let me just say, we would say that the curse of Genesis 3.16 is not male headship. We do not believe that that is a result of sin. But the curse of sin is the difficulty that is now injected into creative order. So, for example, Adam was cursed, and God says, the ground will be hard for you. For Adam working the ground, that was not a result of sin. You guys might not know this, but actually for all eternity, God is going to give us work to do. We're going to have things to do. So work is not a sin. The ground fighting against Adam when he wants to work, that is the result of sin. Eve, we see here, was cursed with the difficulty of childbearing. 
Childbearing was not a result of sin. The difficulty of birth was. And let me just say, if someone needs to stick a needle into your spinal cord to block the feeling of pain from waist down, that is real pain. And I thank God that that is not a grace I need to ask for, okay? So the curse here is not male headship. It's the difficulty of it. The pattern God established in the beginning was beautiful. Adam and Eve respected each other, served each other, and complimented each other, and enjoyed each other. What sin did was ruin this harmony. They ruined the dance. Sin made men abandon servant leadership and become passive or harsh or uncaring. And sin distorted the woman's desire to support and honor into defiance and domination. So we believe that when Christ came to live, die, and rise from the dead, it was not to get rid of male headship, but to affirm the beauty of God's design. Uh, For example, in Ephesians 5, when Paul tells Christian husbands to love their wives, he says to do that because it reflects Christ loving the church. Notice, Paul doesn't establish male headship in the home because of some sort of cultural situation or some sort of cultural pressure. He establishes male headship on the gospel. In the same way, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as a picture of how the church submits to Christ. Submission is not rooted in cultural norms, but in God's good design. And to say that in 1 Corinthians 14 is only for a very specific situation in the church in Corinth, it actually doesn't align with what Paul says exactly right here. Look at 1 Corinthians 14 again, and look at the second half of verse 33. Paul says says this, as in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches. Paul is not just giving directions to Corinth, but for all the churches everywhere. And in Galatians 3.28, which is a beautiful verse of the one salvation that we have in Christ, but this is not a verse about removing distinctions and roles. What this verse is saying is that regardless of race, class, or gender, we can experience salvation. Barriers to salvation have been removed, not distinctions and roles. To say more than that would be to say more than what Paul intended. And just think about this. If God was truly trying to take away every distinction between male and female, if sameness was the vision that God had for humanity, God would not need to create us male and female. He could have created us neuter. He could have done that, but he doesn't do that. Instead, for all eternity, we will have our distinct maleness and femaleness in worshiping God. And that is a beautiful thing. Now, let me just say that even though we graciously disagree with the egalitarian position, and I know that there's many of you here in this room today who hold to this position, I want to say right now that you are a brother and sister in Christ. And here at Park Community Church, we're so glad that you're here. Now, this is a very important issue for the church because this is an issue of, of governance. 
but this is not a primary issue of the church. This is what I would call a secondary issue, that these are not salvation-level issues. Jesus being fully man and God, we're saved by grace through faith, the Trinity. You know, the Bible is the inerrant word of God. You know, we together as complementarians and egalitarians, we both agree on these doctrinal truths, and both together, we will die for these truths. I know that. I know that, okay? So if I can say that even though there might be disagreement with our official stance as a church, I truly believe that we can still have unity with one another because our union with Christ is not in these secondary issues, but in these primary and essential doctrines of the faith. In other words, we can have unity because what we agree on far outweighs what we disagree on. So I've said a lot, so let me just summarize by saying, in the church and in the homes, we are siblings and not subordinates. Our wives, our ladies are not subordinates playing junior varsity role here at Park Community Church. They're not slaves, but they are daughters of the most high God. Our women have the spirit of God and they have been given gifts to make an impact for the kingdom. Our ladies, our sisters, they are hungry for the word of God and they are ferocious for the mission of Christ. So if I can exhort us here as a church, let's embrace the beauty of God's design and let's see our sisters empowered to lead and to teach and to serve and to partner with men in ministry. Let's embrace the complementing distinctions and dependence we have for one another. Let's be a church where our men and women are celebrated and flourishing together in their giftedness. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that your word is not meant to divide us, but Father, it's meant to bring us together because it is your word. And Father, as a church, that is what we stand on. Not in our preferences, not in our opinions, not on cultural pressures or norms, but on the wisdom and beauty of your word. And Father, we thank you too that it's in the cross, that it's the cross of Jesus Christ that brings us together, that it is the cross that makes us a family, that it is the cross that proclaims our worth and value. That our worth and value is not in what other people say we are, is not in what roles we have or positions or titles, but our value and worth is based on your love for us in Christ. So Father, we thank you for that. And God, I'll pray, Lord, that you will protect our church because God, Satan loves nothing more than seeing division happen. He's always scheming for that. But we thank you that it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ that he has overcome this division and that now we can have flourishing as men and women in the church. So God, would you help us, Lord, unify us through the cross and help us to celebrate one another in our giftedness. It's in Christ that we pray.